Good morning. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at John 1, verses 14 to 18 this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, as you find your place, as Pastor Mike has already said in the description box, everything you need there. Uh, but the most important thing you need is your Bible. Uh, we're a Bible preaching church, and we, we don't put our Bibles under our seats or in the pews. We, we use them, and we all through the uh, the sermon this morning and so open your Bible up to John 1 we've been just beginning working through the whole gospel of John and we're right here at the beginning at one of the most uh, beautiful sections of in all of scripture and so let's read it together and then we'll pray and get started John 1 verses 14 to 18 verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one else has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Let's pray together. Lord, as we open up Your Word this morning, we are. I pray as Your people, just once again, almost anew and afresh, smitten by the glory that has been revealed to us through Your Son. Lord, we've been singing of that glory. And now we long to look at your word and see the glory of Christ in the very gospel. And so, Lord, help us today, we pray, as we long to understand your word and then reflect him in the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you a question. It's an easy question to get us started this morning. Who in your life has had the greatest personal impact? Um, I know as, as we all get older, I think our parents and or our grandparents um, only grow in our awareness of the, of the abiding impact they've had in our life. Um, but maybe it was your parents, maybe it was a trusted friend or a teacher or a coach or even a pastor. Can I ask you to just let that person pop in your head and then uh, ask yourself the question, why? Why was that person so impactful? Why, even now, even if you were six and you're old now, why, why do you look back and say, that's the first person that pops in my mind? Why was that? Most of the time, brothers and sisters, it's just because they were there. They were there for us, whether it was good or bad. They were consistently there. They consistently cared about us, thought about us, was there for us. In other words, they did not bail on us. That was the reason oftentimes why people have the greatest positive impact. And on the flip side of that, the reason why oftentimes some of the people have such a negative impact on us is they were people that should have not bailed on us but did. So this morning, John wants to give us the good news that Jesus Christ, God came to us. He 
incarnated himself with us. And listen, he promised to never leave us. John is making his case. He is already, if you go back and read, he's already presented his eyewitness testimony. And now he's calling for corroborating witnesses. And he's going to make his case through the whole book. But he's laying it out even in his introduction. So we have John the Apostle, the evangelist as we would call him. And he's now presenting case from a man named John. John the Baptist. Listen to verse 15. To look at it right there. It says, you notice the sort of parentheses there. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, but he was before me. So though John the Baptist was older in physical age than Jesus was, he says that he's agreeing with John the evangelist, John the apostle's testimony that said he is the eternal God. He pre-existed me and he was eternal. So he is agreeing. Uh, this is what he seeks to do. He's going to do that over and over and we'll see that as, as, the, as God's word unfolds. One of the books that's helpful for me as a pastor that I oftentimes use when I begin a new study of a book of the Bible is a book, two books that Mark Deborah wrote. Um, they're simply summaries of both the Old Testament and the New. I like the name of his titles. The Old Testament he calls Promises Made. The New Testament he calls Promises Kept. And so there's Promises Made and Promises Kept. What he's teaching us there, even in the titles, is that the coming of Christ is not the beginning of the story. It is not the beginning of the gospel story. It is simply the next chapter. It is that the promises made in the Old Testament are the promises kept by Christ. Far from what we would have heard by some people unhitching the Old Testament. Christ connects it together. He fulfills it. We'll see that today in the sermon. Our main idea... Jesus became flesh to reveal and explain the gospel of God. Jesus became flesh, and he became flesh to both reveal his very character and explain the gospel of God. First, let's just look at this critical, profound truth of the, of the Christian faith. Pastor Micah already has been talking about it. Jesus became flesh. Verse 14, the whole sermon's right here in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His truth. And, excuse me, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I just wanted to spend a minute just thinking about the mystery of the Incarnation. The Incarnation, just think about these three words, just the, the mystery involved. God became human. That's what we're saying when we say incarnation. God incarnated himself in a time and space as a man. We've already been talking about this, but to even begin to wrap our minds around this mystery, we've got to understand the plurality of the Godhead. We spoke about that last week. Listen to this, Colossians 2.9. It says, from in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, if you want to hold your place there, flip over to now to Philippians 
Philippians 2, 7 says this, but he, but Jesus, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so do you see, look at those both texts both together. You have the very fullness of God, his deity dwelling in Christ. At the same time, he was born in the likeness of men. This is the mystery of the incarnation, that you have both the union of the Godhead with manhood in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the great mystery. It is the doctrine, brothers and sisters, the doctrine of incarnation is what stops be them Muslims or Jews or Jehovah's Witnesses in their tracks. And they'll give you his humanity, but they cannot grasp God became human. This is the central understanding of the Christian faith, the very gospel of God. Verse 14, the Word. This is the Word that he's already said in verse 1. The Word became flesh. The Word is Jesus. He became flesh. Now, don't take flesh. Sometimes in the Bible, flesh is used of the, to point to the corrupt nature. What he's using the word flesh here is simply to tell us he was human. He was a mortal man. So how do we understand this? And this is a little deep, but it's important. First, is to simply to understand in the incarnation, we have two natures united in one person. Two natures united in one person. This is why we can say Christ is truly God and He is truly man. I hope you've been reading through 1 John along with the Gospel of John. Listen to 1 John. You may want to mark 1 John. I've got it marked in, in, my, in my Bible. 1 John 1. Look at verse 2. Remember, Jesus is the light. Verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. This word manifest just simply means revealed. He was made clear. Eternal life is a person. And He has been revealed. He has been made clear to us. This is the incarnation. Two natures and one person. And the second point is, is very clear. That these two natures are distinct. It is not as if you take uh, Coke and lemonade and mix them together in one big cup and you have this mixture, this diluting of one of both by one. No, these Christ's two natures being God and man is distinct. They remain distinct. He is God and he is man. So why? Why is the incarnation so important? Why become a man? Why could he have not done it a different way? Well, the first, we see three. One is to deal with our sin. Christ became a man to deal with our sin. If you've got 1 John, look at chapter 3 and verse 8. Remember, 1 John is written to either give people assurance of their salvation or to make sure they are not assured if they shouldn't be. And so in verse 8 he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Listen to this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is why Christ came. Remember, the, the devil was the rebel that rebelled against the lordship of God and then led us to do the same thing. 
And Christ came to deal with that. Matter of fact, Hebrews 4, 15 says that Jesus went through absolutely everything we went to. He was tempted just like us, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted like us. He was betrayed like we have been betrayed. He was abandoned like abandoned. He went through the death of people that he loved, and yet he never sinned. Christ came to deal with our sin. We could say it this way. Jesus Christ came to die. He came to die. That was what was necessary to deal with our sin in order that we may know God. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 puts it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He became rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. You see what He's saying? And God wrapped Himself up in poverty, in humanity, in order that we might become rich. We might become the children of God. Christ came to deal with our sin. He also came, look at verse 14 again in John 1, to dwell with His people. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now this is the point where I remember we are not trying to, in coming to the Gospel, disconnect the Old Testament from the New. Truly, brothers and sisters, I would say you cannot understand the beauty of, of John 1.14 unless you understand the Old Testament. You see, John has in mind here the Old Testament, the very tabernacle, the dwelling place of God among His people. This is why he used this word. This word dwell means tabernacle. It literally means he pitched his tent. We don't pitch tents now, but that this was a tabernacle. Remember, it's in the midst of the people. It was pitched in the midst of God's people. If you remember, Exodus 33 and verse 11 says it was the tent of meeting where God and Moses spoke face to face. It was the very presence of God. This is critical, brothers, just to understand this. That the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle, was for the people of Israel, the center of life and worship was everything. Their lives and their worship, all, everything about them centered around this. And now John is saying, in Christ, Christ is the center of our life and worship as this new community. And so we see Christ came to deal with sin, to dwell with His people, but He also came to put His glory on display. Again, we see that right in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, turn with me to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. I want you to see what Moses longed for. You see, what Moses longed to see in Christ, we can see. Verse 18, Moses says, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for the man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me that you shall stand on the rock. And while the glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you can see my back. 
but my face you cannot see. Do you see this, brothers and sisters, in Christ? What Moses longed to see, we can see because we have seen the Lord. This is the testimony that both John the Evangelist and John um, the Baptist gives. Brothers and sisters, we're in Kings Mountain and there's a train coming. So when you hear this, you hear this little noise in the background, it's just a train. It's part of being in Kings Mountain. We both love the train and hate the train at the same time. The glory. What is the glory? What is the glory of God that Moses longed to see and in Christ we can see? Brothers and sisters, it is the visible revelation, the visible manifestation of the character of God, the excellencies of who God is, we cannot fully look at, but in Christ, we now can see the glory of God. This is what the temple partially reflected. The temple, the tabernacle, all of this ornate and all this intricate detail simply was meant to point to the glory of God. With Christ, the fullness of the picture is completed. Three words. God with us. This is the very essence of the good news. It is the very essence of how you understand what the incarnation is. It is God with us. And two words for John summarized it here. Grace, truth. You see that in the text? This leads us to our second point. Jesus became flesh to both do two things. To reveal the gospel of God and to explain it. And so think about this with me. The gospel of God, now because Christ has come, the gospel of God is embodied in a person. And His name is Jesus. Look with me in verse 16 to 18. This is the testimony. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Do you see that? In Christ, God has been made known to us. He reveals the gospel. Christ reveals the very fullness of both grace and truth. I want you to see something. This was just amazing this week as I studied. You see in verse 16, the word grace upon grace. Many people say that what that, what that looks like, what that means, is that we as Christians experience grace much like you're standing in the ocean. There's just one wave of grace after another, after another. We are just, we are just surrounded and overwhelmed oftentimes by the grace of God. And that's true. But I don't believe that's what John's pointing at here. Um, well, you could even say this is saying grace instead of grace. So what does he mean? I believe verse 17 is critical to understand it. Um, he is pointing to both the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel. Let's look at the gospel of grace, this fullness of grace. You see, you can't understand this without an understanding of both the Old and the New Testament. It's impossible to, for us to grab a hold of this without this. But understand this, what he's saying this morning is that the law was grace. The law was grace. The law is, is the very thing that marks the Old Covenant. When, if you read Hebrews, when they're, when they're talking about the Old, the Old Covenant, that which is old, 
and that which is passing. They're, they're speaking about the law and all that it entailed. The law was a gift of God to God's people. Why? Turn with me to Romans 7. I think this is one of the clearest passages. Romans 7. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. You see that the giving of the law was grace because it showed man their sinfulness. Look. Listen to what it says. Verse 12, Romans 7. So the law is holy and the commandments is holy and righteous and good. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandments might become sinful beyond measure. So let me give you an illustration to help you, I hope, understand why both the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law was grace, the New Covenant, the gospel is greater. Imagine you've been feeling a little bad, but you sort of get used to feeling bad, and, and your spouse, if you're like me, my, my wife makes, will make me go to the doctor. And you go to the doctor, and they say, we need to do an MRI. They're doing an MRI, and the doctor comes back in and says, we've We've, we've ran this MRI on you and you have cancer. And, and listen, the, the cancer is worse than what you thought it was or what we even imagined. It's, it's, it's bad. So can I ask you a question? Was the MRI good or bad? Does the MRI cause the cancer? Did it remove the cancer? Do you see the point? The MRI was absolutely necessary, but listen, something major has to happen. A surgery has to take place. A surgeon and chemo or whatever it is has to still happen, but the MRI was essential to understand the problem and that the problem was worse than what we thought it was. This was the purpose of the law. The law was given to us to show us the sin that's within us and to show that it is worse than what we could ever thought imaginable. And so that we see the law is grace. But brothers and sisters, his point here is that the gospel is greater grace. It is greater grace. It is the surgeon with the scalpel. Christ has come to deal with our sin, to dwell among us, and reveal God's grace to us in a greater way. Turn with me to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. Look with me at verse 4. Galatians 4 verse 4 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We don't only have that Christ coming to deal with our sin. We have Him coming to make us His family. Brothers and sisters, that is greater grace. This greater grace. He not only reveals our problem, He provides the redemption the necessary surgery we have to make us whole and not only stops there, He makes us family. This is gospel grace. That the new is better than the old, but there's also a gospel truth that's connected in the old and the new. Turn with me to Jeremiah. Pretty easy book to find. Isaiah and, and Jeremiah are large books. So Jeremiah 31, 31. Very important passage for a Christian. I want to read it. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I was made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, 
Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it, it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each of his brothers saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Brothers and sisters, this is the promise made of the gospel the Old Testament. And so with me, turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. The whole point of Hebrews, brothers and sisters, that the author is trying to help us understand Christ is better. Christ is greater. The new covenant is better than the, the old. It, the old pointed to the new. That was Hebrews' point. He points to the promises that was kept. Verse, look at verse 6. Hebrews 8 verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for the second. Verse 8, For He finds fault with them when He says, Look at what happens next. If you still got Jeremiah, you can check and make sure. He quotes Jeremiah 31 right here in its entirety. What I have just read to you, Hebrews says that the better covenant that was spoken of in Jeremiah has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Brothers and sisters, the incarnation reveals gospel in both the grace and truth in its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. But I want you to know it also explains the gospel to us. Christ's incarnation explains the gospel. I could say it this way. Christ's incarnation explains the whole of God's Word to us in Christ. You see, let's return back to this thought in verse 14. God Tabernacle with us. You see, the tabernacle in the Old Testament, there was a holy of holies. There was the Ark of the Covenant. And in there was the law. The law was God's standard. The temple, you see, was God's presence among the people. And at the temple, in the tabernacle area, was where God's remedy for sin, the sacrificial system, happened there. At the tabernacle was the very place of worship. It was the gathering place. It was the center. The focus of God's expectation for His new community was the worship of Yahweh and Him alone. Notice the tabernacle, if you remember, was in the center of this new community. It reflected God's dwelling place, God's being with this community. So do you see it? Christ explains that. Christ fulfills all that. You see, it was Jesus Christ who met God's perfect standard. He obeyed the law completely. The law is completed in Christ. And brothers and sisters, in Christ we are free to follow Christ. The temple, God's very presence, is now Christ in us. We now, brothers and sisters, there's not a, a veil separating us 
from the holies of holies. The Gentiles do not have to worship in the outer courts of any temple anymore. The curtain has been removed. God is with us. His Spirit indwells us. Christ met God's standard. Christ brought His presence to us and even indwells us. And Christ provided the remedy. He fulfilled the sacrificial system, brothers and sisters. Although they had to constantly offer sacrifices, Christ offered Himself once for all. Christ is fulfilled the standard of God. He is the very presence of God. He provided the remedy of sin. And God's expectation now for, the, for His people is that our lives as this new community is centered on Him. He is the center of our lives, of our worship. He is the middle of everything for those who believe. Christ fulfilled all that. Christ explains, not only reveals the gospel, but it is all explained, the problem and the remedy in Jesus Christ. Again, Hebrews 9 makes this so simple and clear. But brothers and sisters, if you don't know the Old Testament, it doesn't even make sense. That the temple and all the sacrificial system and all those things that we read were simply shadows. They were simply pointing to something greater. Hebrews 9 says this, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Speaking of all the old covenant sacrificial system and the law. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it, nor is it to offer Himself repeatedly as high priests enter into the holy places every year with blood, not His own. But, he, but, but for then He would have to offer repeatedly since the very foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Christ fulfilled it. Christ explains it. Christ demonstrates it. Jesus became flesh, brothers and sisters, to reveal and explain the very gospel of God that now the good news of how man can be reconciled to a holy God is embodied in one person and one person alone and his name is Jesus. You could summarize the beauty and the importance of the incarnation in two phrases. Three words to start with. God with us. Four words. Christ in my place. God with us. Christ in my place. This is why he came. So what today? How is my life putting Christ on display? If, God, if Christ came to put God on display, He renews us, He saves us, He redeems us in order that we may do the same. As I was reading through 1 John this week, I've seen this passage. Turn with me if you have it marked still. 1 John 4, verse 8. 1 John 4, verse 8. It says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we may have life through Him. 
So when I read that, I stopped in verse 9. And I was like, because he said, because God is love. And he said, in this, the love of God. So what did he mean by in this? That could literally be interpreted because of this. Through this means. It's no more profound three words in all of Scripture than that. God is love. It is both the beauty of the gospel, and listen, brothers and sisters, it is our problem. Because it tells us who God is. It, has, it reveals to us God's character. God is love. How do we know it? This is what he's saying. Because God's character was revealed because Christ dwelt among us. John's point is both positive and negative because there were those that were denying the very incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he said to deny the incarnation that Christ came in the flesh is to deny the love of God. And if you deny it, you do not have it. But from a positive side, to embrace the incarnation is to embrace the love of God. And to embrace the love of God is to embrace Christ Himself. For He came to demonstrate, to reveal the love of God to us. Why? Well, He tells us here. Does it say, look at this, so that we may not go to hell? It's not what it says. Is it? It's not John's point. Is that true? Absolutely that's true. But look what John's saying. He says, so that we might live through Him. John's concern through all of his writing is that we might live. That knowing Christ now, Christ being incarnated in us, for us, produces something in us. It affects how we live right now. Can I ask you a question? I hope Greg could hope you talk about this. Will, will I commit myself to live incarnationally? Let me say it again. You may not ever heard it put that way. Will I commit myself to live incarnationally? What do I mean by that? What does it look like to live incarnationally? Well, it is to go back and understand at the essence of what Christ did, what God did. He came to us. He dwelt. He abided. John loves that word. He abided with us. And so I want you to see two bookends of John. We're going to come back to this. I want you to see it. Try to understand this word. How do we live incarnational? John 1, 14, we've just got through spending all this time looking at it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about this. Jesus' ministry life. Three years of ministry. How did He spend most of His time? He spent His life living with 12 ordinary men. Investing His life. Living life with them. Not only teaching them and loving them. They, were, they saw Him in the morning. They saw Him when He was tired. They saw Him when He was asleep on the boat. They saw Him go through everything they went through yet without sin. He lived life with them. That's one bookend. But turn with me to John 20. John 20. I want you to see the other bookend. John 20 and verse 21. Jesus is resurrected and He has appeared to His disciples and they were excited to say the least. And what he said to them, John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what it means to live an incarnational life. 
God sent His Son to dwell with us. He lived His life among the people that He ministered to. He raised, He, he discipled disciples to do the same thing. It means that mission and ministry by nature is to dwell with someone and bring the gospel to them and refuse to bail on them till Christ is complete and mature in them and to promise them you will never bail on them. You will not leave them. You commit yourself to them. Will you commit yourself to that today? This is what it means, brothers and sisters, to be a Christian. We are saved to give our life, to incarnate ourselves into the lives of real brokenness in people's life and to bring the truth of God's grace and God's gospel into that situation, wherever we find them. This is incarnational ministry. It simply takes the model of Jesus' life and makes it one's own model for life. Brothers and sisters, remember this. You are somebody's grace. You are the instruments in the Redeemer's hands that have been saved and left here for a purpose. You are somebody else's grace to dwell with them, to bring God's truth to bear in their life through loving them and through seeing them formed into Christ. And you know what else? They are, they are your grace. You are not only theirs, they are yours. Brothers and sisters, this is discipleship. It is that we commit ourselves to dwell with people, to see Christ formed in them. And in doing that, they are seeing that Christ is formed in us. This is what the new community does. Can I ask you a question that we've been saying? And it's all Southern Baptists have. Who's your one? Who's your one that you will commit to live incarnationally with? That you will abide with? That you will grab a hold of? That you will refuse to let go? Who's your one? Brothers and sisters, this is my prayer for us that we would commit ourselves. We only have one life. We only have one life that we would commit ourselves to putting this truth to work in our life, to put the Lord on full display by who we love and how we love, by what we seek in their life, to see Christ's fullness lived out. This is what it means to live an incarnational life. Brothers and sisters, the Word became human and He moved in next door so that we might know God and enjoy God forever. And as the Father sent Him, so He sends us. Will you pray with me? Lord, Thank you for your word today given to your people. Thank you for the, the beauty of it, for the depth of it. Um, Lord, we now come to the point to where we say, now what? How do we respond? How am I going to respond? What does this mean by my life of generosity as we're about to give and as we're about to go? And then we go to work and then we shepherd our children, all these things, God. How do I put Christ to display in those situations, Lord? May we respond now, Lord, as those of us are here about to come to the table to remember the, Your Son and His work on our behalf that Jesus came to die in order that we may know You. We remember that now. Remembering how we give and how we grow, Lord. 
as new covenant Christians, may we live all of our life, like Romans 12 says, as a pleasing sacrifice to you and how we live and how we love and how we declare the truth in the lives of the situation. Oh God, this world, our community needs grace and truth. You placed us here, God, for such a time as this. May we not waste this opportunity. We have the good news. You came to us. May we commit ourselves. May we respond now and make much of you in how we sing, how we give, and how we go. In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.